Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Lori Dickmeyer. I just finished speaking with Dr. Jennifer Hubbard about her new book, China and the World, an Anthropology of Confucius Institutes, Soft Power, and Globalization, published in 2019 by the University of Hawaii Press. Interested in China's global engagements and use of soft power, she decided to conduct interviews and archival research about Confucius Institutes in the United States. In the media, the prevailing question is whether Confucius Institutes infringe upon free speech or academic freedom by presenting China in a pretty positive light and leaving out politically sensitive topics. Hubbard argues that such a simplistic question ignores other more interesting questions. Uh, She looks at the Confucius Institutes as a way to tell us about China's place in the world and how China is trying to represent itself, not just to an American audience, but also to a domestic audience in China as a globalized country and a source of globalization for other parts of the world. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies. I'm your host, Lori Dickmeyer. Uh, today, we're talking to Dr. Jennifer Hubbard about her book, China in the World, an Anthropology of Confucius Institutes, Soft Power and Globalization. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I wonder if you could start us off uh, a little bit by talking about your background, where you're coming from. Sure. Um, I actually come at this from a little bit of a different background. When I was in uh, initially as an undergraduate, I was an international relations major. And um, for sort of funny reasons, actually, I ended up staying uh, on campus and doing we had a program that was called co-term. And so you could go five years and do a master's degree at the same time. Um, And I did this program called International Policy Studies. So a lot of my sort of early training was looking at state to state relations. Well, the sort of odd part about this is that um, the whole reason I wanted to stay around and do a master's degree was, in fact, because I was also a bike racer on um, my college team and a local semi-professional team. And so I wanted to be able to stay around and ride my bike for another year. Um, at the time, I would planned on joining the Peace Corps when I graduated and was quite interested in economic development, um, planning on going to Francophone-speaking Africa. And during the fall semester of my final year, when I was completing my master's degree, I um, needed, it was an interdisciplinary program that was a lot of economic development, a lot of international relations, a lot of poli-sci, and I needed a class that could fill a certain time slot. Um, the, the issue was that I rode my bike from three o'clock in the afternoon on um, to six or seven, and so I couldn't find a class that fit into this um, time frame. So I randomly ended up in this class on Chinese economics uh, in a program that was called the Food Research Institute at Stanford. And... I found this class absolutely fascinating. And so that sort of sent, um, caused a bit of an upheaval in my plans as I ended up not um, joining the Peace Corps and moving to China for two years at that point. So 
Um, that was 1987. And I lived there then from 1987 to 1989. And the fact that I was there during 1989 and the demonstrations and the subsequent uh, massacre in Beijing really had a, an influence on where I ended up going with my academic studies. Um, I had assumed that I would um, come back to the United States and do a doctorate in international relations and continue with an examination of sort of state-to-state relationships. But the discussions and the, the events in 1989 really led me to a lifelong interest in thinking about um, no longer state-to-state relationships, but state-to-society relationships and thinking about the nation state, thinking about the public places in which people are grappling with the constitution of the nation. And so I got very interested in looking at how the nation is a public entity and thinking about how is it that individual citizens experience the nation in these public places? Um, And then subsequently, how is it that global citizens experience the nation in these public places? And so this initially led to dissertation research that looked at memories of the state, specifically looking at different generations of intellectuals and their experiences with the Maoist state. And then after that, looking into studies of collective memory that looked at the Maoist past. So I engaged in a number of studies of um, fetishism and Mao badge collecting, cultural revolution restaurants, um, looking at intellectuals and their experiences with the nation state as forms of moral authority. Once I had ended with this examination of looking at the collective memory, um, these studies of Mao badge collectors, cultural revolution restaurants, um, I also actually looked at tank man representations in political comics in the United States. Uh, The next phase of this research had to do with mega events, specifically the 2008 Olympics and the 2010 Shanghai Expo. And again, I was concerned with thinking about how is it that the nation represents itself in these mega events, um, which is a topic that gets covered fairly, you know, fairly um, richly in in issues like or in disciplines as such as cultural studies. I really wanted to think about how is it that populations engage with these representations. And so this was all sort of on the ground extended um, fieldwork with people who were attending these events and people who were living in these places at the time they were happening. So the work on the Beijing Olympics looked at such issues as how the Beijing Olympics became a platform for debates over international relations theories of good global citizenship, specifically as this manifest in China's role in the Darfur region of Sudan. Uh, I looked at youth nationalism. I looked at commodification. Um, When I looked at the expo, I looked at a number of different issues. One of them had to do with the ways in which environmental awareness was exhibited at the expo and how people consumed and practiced these particular kinds of ideas of environmental awareness. I also looked at representations of the 2008 Sichuan earthquake, specifically how they situated the Communist Party in relationship to earthquake victims um, in a manner that produced certain kinds of um, concepts of state power. Uh, I also looked at expo representations of urban space Uh, thinking again about issues of sustainability and how these representations of sustainability ended up excluding certain uh, sectors of the population from participation um, as sort of um, model citizens. And lastly, then, most recently, I've turned to look at China's global engagements, and that gets us to this book, China in the World, that we'll be talking about today. Great. Um, And if you could, uh, why don't you start to tell us a little bit about this 
project. Could you tell us about what kind of field and archival work that you uh, put into this book? Um, Can you kind of set up for us the idea of why you want to look at uh, Confucius Institutes and Confucius classrooms? Sure. Um, Again, this was a little bit of a roundabout process. Um, This work on mega events actually sort of naturally led me into discussions of soft power. Uh, The idea that through a nation's cultural practices and political ideologies and global practices, that a nation can attract other nations and therefore gain support for its policies and its um, concepts that, that it wants to push through the world. And this book emerged from that. What initially it was going to be was actually just going to be a chapter on an edited volume that was going to be looking at China's global projects. And so I initially spent about a month at a Confucius Institute in the United States and started doing research for this chapter. And I really found that uh, this was sort of more toward the beginning of the Confucius Institute project, and they weren't that well known yet. And I really was beginning to realize, number one, that there was a real dearth of research on the subject, uh, particularly in terms of how people were talking about them, the fact that nobody was really in the classroom at this point. And at the same time, they were the most extensive soft power initiative that had been launched by China. And so I realized that the subject absolutely needed a book rather than a chapter. And what most of the academic studies of Confucius Institutes at the time, um, there were no book length studies uh, at the time I began this research. And most of the research that had been done had been published by scholars in the fields of international relations and political science. And um, the methods through which those scholars um, studied the Confucius Institutes were fairly standard methodologies for those disciplines. So largely based upon textual analysis of policy documents um, and really looked at the subject from a level of state to state engagement. And we're looking much more at soft power policy goals rather than their implementation and effect. And similarly, there was a lot of journalistic studies at the time that mirrored this focus on the Chinese state, um, you know, accusing them of these institutes of being spy outposts and gateways for communist propaganda. And really nobody had actually gone into the classroom to look at what was actually happening in the space of the classroom. So, I hoped with this research to move us beyond the macro level to think about soft power policy in effect. How is it implemented? What are the conflicts in implementation? How is it consumed? So to not just think about, not just to assume that soft power efforts are effective, because if we're assuming that um, the, these programs are a threat, then we have to assume that the policies are effective. And I wanted to ask not only if they were effective, but to look specifically at how power works in the way it does and why it works in this particular way. And so to move beyond um, the sort of binary question about effect, you actually have to see what's happening and not just to assume that the goals of soft power policy are going to equate to the effect of um, to the results of this. And my concern wasn't was moving us beyond this question of good or bad and to think about why this is the framework. And so I spent five subsequent years then um, in Confucius Institutes in the United States at a variety of levels, both at the university level um, and at the middle and high school level. 
Um, I spent several semesters sitting in on classes at university CIs. Uh, I took students to China with me on the Confucius Institute sponsored um, travel studies trips to China. I attended cultural uh, competitions, language practices, lectures. Uh, so that was sort of the, the participant observation part of the field work. There was also a lot of archival work that went along with this. So looking at memoranda of understanding, looking at Hanban documentation. Hanban is the sort of parent organization of the Confucius Institutes. Uh, I looked at teacher training manuals. I looked at curricular materials, lesson plans, congressional reports on the topic. There's sort of a I wanted to. I wanted both a broad and a narrow perspective, so both a micro and a macro level analysis, and not just an official one. So, so I sort of started with the narrow. Um, a lot of scholars had, or not a lot, some scholars had done interviews with policy officials and Hanban administrators. I really wanted my work to be with the people who were on the ground, and so I spent all these years interviewing teachers. I interviewed parents. I interviewed administrators. Um, I sat in on classes. I talked to students, and each of these groups comes to the Confucius Institute with a really different perspective and a really different experience, um, both what they're putting into it and what they're getting out of it. And if we can understand how soft power plays out among these really diverse audiences, we can also understand how these projects that are these programs lead to these very complex and sometimes contradictory soft power goals and effects. It's not just sort of one effect. And this is what was really important to sort of tease apart the complexity of these things. So I wanted to understand why students studied Chinese, what they were getting out, how their parents framed China for them, how administrators looked at Confucius Institutes as filling some of the financial gaps in the U.S. educational system. Um, why did Chinese teachers teach? What, what they got out of it? So this was sort of the more narrow, grounded basis of this. But then I wanted to look at these from a really broad perspective as well, too, and Think about, you know, how do we understand Confucius Institutes as really providing a perspective on international relations and thinking through the ways in which we can look at this um, small subset of global relations and sort of understand how China and the U.S. are, are understanding each other through these institutes, and particularly what it means to be modern. What does globalization mean? Um, how is power constructed in these institutes? Um, so fundamentally, I began to realize that these Confucius Institutes are representing a way that China's trying to offer itself as a model for globalization rather than target of globalization. And we often think about globalization as going from the rest from the West out, and China's sort of trying to think about how it can be a model for globalization. So China's representing itself in these places as an agent of cultural and political influence rather than a passive recipient. And so Certainly while they're language and culture programs, they aren't just language and culture programs. And I would argue here that studying them is really fundamentally also about studying the ways in which China is trying to change the global geopolitical order and how we can see responses to them in that particular light. Yeah. And throughout the rest of your book, you kind of address different topics or different themes that emerged uh, for you as you were looking at these Confucius Institutes and Confucius classrooms. So I'm wondering if we can take a look at uh, each of these chapters very briefly and talk about some parts of them. So in your second chapter, you're talking about um, how these Confucius Institutes and classrooms are using very particular types of Chinese culture 
and what they're teaching students, um, what you call patriotic state culture. Um, we might also call this traditional Chinese culture. So um, if you could reflect a little bit on why you think um, it's this type of culture that's being used uh, in, the, in the teaching about China and Chinese language. Um, it's a great question, and it's not this this use of this traditional or this what as you said what I call patriotic state culture is not unique to the Confucius Institutes by by any means. Um, this was a form of uh, this was a culture that was promoted at the Expo. It was promoted at the Olympics, and there are a number of reasons for this. Um, soft power theorists typically understand soft power to be constituted by a nation's cultural practices and products, but also by its political ideals and practices. And um, the you know clearly China understands, or the the creators of this policy understand that its political ideals and practices are not particularly attractive in the West. Um, in fact, they're quite excoriated in the West, and so. These soft power projects very assiduously avoid discussion of China's political system and focus on this traditional culture. Um, number one, it's recognizable globally. Um, it's non-controversial. Uh, it's lasted for thousands of years. Um, and one could argue that it's genuinely Chinese. And so some people will actually see it as a very cynical attempt to address the decline in beliefs in communism um, or to provide a new source of legitimacy for the state. Um, the CCP oftentimes sort of um, through the promotion of this culture represents itself kind of as a savior of a 5,000-year-old tradition. Um, others will see it as an attempt to distract citizens from the problems of contemporary China. Um, nonetheless, though, I think we really have to take it seriously as a form of culture and not just see it as propaganda, but to, th but to think about what invoking this form of culture tells us about what China thinks about value, um, about how China sees its role as a modernizer, as a globalizer, um, but also to see how it's contested. You know, how is it that people use it to strategize? Um, how and why does the state use it to um, deploy it to create power? Mm -hmm. And one other question that I thought was interesting or one issue that you raised in this chapter was um, the naming of the Confucius Institutes themselves. So obviously named after uh, the Chinese philosopher Confucius, um, but he's kind of had a, I don't know, a mixed response in uh, China in recent years. So uh, I was wondering if you might talk a little bit about the choice of Confucius uh, as the person to name this institute after. So he's arguably the most well-known historical figure in China outside of China. And um, the Confucius, the Confucius of the Confucius Institute is this very sort of anodyne representation that, you know, the sort of fortune, fortune cookie version of, you know, Confucius says, et cetera, et cetera. And um, there's a particular moral authority that goes along with being, you know, the dominant globally recognized philosopher from China. And so in some ways he's become a bit of a brand. Um, so on the surface, that seems fairly obvious why they would choose this. Now, what a lot of people don't understand, though, is in fact that he remains, or at least historically, has sort of a very controversial figure in China. Certainly during the Maoist years, there were very violent public campaigns to critique him. Uh, Confucius temples were destroyed. Um, Confucian works were burned and destroyed. Uh, he was called the archvillain of feudalism. And so it's not so his resurrection was not necessarily an obvious thing because it's very much going off of um, in, in contradiction to 30 years of his vilification during the Maoist era. 
nonetheless, um, he's in the contemporary era. He's very much been repurposed for a number of uh, number of reasons. When I was doing dissertation work in the 1990s in China, this was the beginning of what they call these Confucian education campaigns. And there was public praise both in newspapers and on these um, blackboards that were all over town um, for Confucian values of that were represented as filial piety, loyalty, education. And you can now, there are Confucian kindergartens. You can send your kids to Confucian camps. Um, President Xi Jinping dots his, dots his political speeches constantly with Confucian sayings. Uh, his hometown has been refurbished. So he's become sort of a figure of this Chinese tradition that is seen as something you both unique to China and something that really has the potential to emulate for the better. Now, this was uh, a couple of years ago, this was made manifest in very concrete forms through this enormous bronze statue that went up in Tiananmen Square. And you have to remember that Tiananmen Square is really sort of the public place of political legitimacy. But what um, actually, after a couple of weeks, the statue was taken down in the middle of the night and officials wouldn't say why. Uh, why it had been taken down, where it was going, what this point was. And so it's clear that there is a controversy over this figure and what this figure represent, represents. Um, some cynical citizens see this as a very hackneyed attempt to get people to obey the state. Others see it as an attempt to get people to reject processes of westernization. Um, what's interesting, though, actually, is that in the Confucius Institute classroom, there's actually very, very little that has anything to do with Confucius. Um, there's usually a picture on the wall and really not much else. Uh, so this brings us to your next chapter now, uh, which is about why do students in the U.S. decide to study Chinese? Um, so the, the title of your chapter gives that away. So I'll let you answer this question. Um, why were many of the students you observed uh, interested in learning Chinese or why did they want to learn Chinese? Um, so that's really sort of a fundamental question to the study of soft power. For if, if we are understanding soft power as working in these programs, then we necessarily have to equate the spread of language with some sort of desire for China. And the desire to study the language has to then necessarily reflect on China and Chinese, and then which then confirms the transfer of power from U.S. to China. And I say that because a lot of the studies of soft power really see it as a zero-sum game, so that if China has rising soft power, the U.S. has less of it. And so then to assume studying the language, I mean, you have to assume that the student is really interested in China and loves China, and that is really consuming unproblematically the message that China is, is trying to get across in these institutes. And so in my years of studying the Confucius Institutes, I looked explicitly at this equation and analyzed in some depth why students studied Chinese. And perhaps ironically, it was actually often not about China or the value of the language itself. And um, I came across, as you said, the title sort of you know, gives, gives the story away, but I began to see two sort of broad reasons why students were studying Chinese. And one of them called was I called the cool quotient. And the other one I called the magic bullet. And the cool quotient came out because many students talked about studying Chinese as being cool. And I started initially thinking, well, what's what's cool about this, right? You know, is it that China's cool? Is it that the language is cool? Um, but really what students were saying is that Studying Chinese made them cool. It made them stand out as having some kind of enviable school skill 
that was notoriously difficult to learn. Um, they could go to China and talk to people. They could understand some of the language and movies like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Um, so it sort of it made them as individuals cool because they were doing something that was different. It was perceived to be hard. Um, some of them actually took Chinese because the schools didn't have Japanese and students were really into anime and they uh, told me that teaching that taking Chinese was somehow Asian enough. It was close enough to Japanese. So it sort of made them cosmopolitan and made them kind of multicultural in that sense. And so it had very little to do with China uh, or that particular rationale had very little to do with China, but it had to do with the ways in which taking Chinese created a certain kind of subjectivity for the student. Um, the second uh, the second rationale that I came to call uh, the magic bullet theory of, of Chinese language uh, came from an experience I had um, when I was uh, shepherding one of my own kids around doing the college application processes. So we were down at Stanford. We were sitting at a uh, sitting in a big auditorium with the director of the admissions, and it was all these. Um, you know, high achieving students and their anxious parents. And there were all sorts of questions about how to get into these elite schools. And they were all assuming that once you got into these elite schools, you got good jobs um, when you graduated. And so the director of admissions gets in there and he says, you know, there is no magic bullet. It's not as if taking Chinese is the magic bullet that's going to get you in here. Right. And so this really started making me thinking about, well, how is it that Chinese then is perceived, you know, despite his sort of disparaging this assumption, how is Chinese perceived as the sort of magic bullet? And in fact, this was the most common reason that students took Chinese. They felt that it was going to get them into elite schools. It would get them good jobs after they graduated. Um, one student administrator called it a return on their investment. Um, another one called it a language of power. So again, we have this case where they're not necessarily interested in China, but they're interested in the ways in which the language is going to provide them with some sort of um, entrapment of ability after they graduate. Um, so at the same time, though, we have to think about what that says implicitly about China, because if Chinese becomes a source of power, um, is it because China is also being increasingly perceived as a source of power? So that doesn't necessarily mean that the language program becomes a source of soft power for China, but it does mean that there is this sort of reimagined world order in which people might or students might perceive a need for Chinese in order to prosper with, within the U.S. context. And so those tend to be the two main reasons students were engaged in this. And uh, another thing that this chapter does is that uh, you also talk a little bit about the Confucius classroom instructors, and they have to sometimes counter some of these uh, entrenched perspectives about China and the Chinese. And at other points, they also use some of these ideas, especially about the magic bullet, uh, to try to get students engaged with uh, what they are learning in the classroom. So I'm wondering if you could talk about um, what did these Confucius classroom instructors do regarding these various ideas that were floating out there about China and Chinese? Right. So you're absolutely right. The, the teachers learned very early that they needed to capitalize upon some of these rationales for um for student engagement, uh, the dropout rates at the Confucius Institutes are very, very high. And this is, uh, and there are a number of reasons for this. You know, number one, you have a bunch of 22, 23, 24 year old um, 
young teachers who've just graduated from college. They don't have a lot of experience. Their training is fairly minimal. And so, and they get thrown into these U.S. classrooms that are very, very different, both disciplinarily and culturally from the classrooms in which they, with which they are familiar in China. And so um, they, in order to sort of reproduce this idea of language as a form of soft power, you actually have to have people in the classrooms. And so the dropout rates they perceive as very, um, as very deleterious to the mission here. So one of the things they did is they would try to normalize the language. Um, many of the students who took the languages were very into getting AP credit, um, working on getting good grades, getting into good schools. And so Teachers would try to make the Chinese classes like any other AP class to sort of reinforce over and over again how Chinese would provide these opportunities for these students later on. So they very much tried to capitalize on students' desire to use Chinese to get them uh, to further their careers, to further their advancement through the educational system. So that's one of the uh, strategies they had. Another strategy was um, they really tried to make it um, Chinese is a notoriously difficult language to learn. Um, there's, there, there's both a bit of a reality to that in terms of the memorization and in terms of the, the tonal aspect of it. On the other hand, it's grammatically quite easy. And so um, they had to capitalize on the, the easy part of this. And so teachers really made it easy for students to pass through these classes. Um, Oftentimes they could retake tests. They were open book tests. They didn't have a lot of work. They were oftentimes very lax with these uh, with these students so that students would stick with it. And it was interesting, though, because one of the things that they realized is that they were both sort of helping students to get through the classes, but also coming across that as quite weak. And students would oftentimes take advantage of this. So there were behaviors in these classrooms that... Um, teachers who had more experiences would never have put up with, you know, kids sleeping in the classroom, kids on their phones in the classroom, kids getting up and wandering around and leaving the classroom. But teachers really wanted to make it so that students would stay in there. So in fact, kind of counterintuitively, there is actually a fair amount less, um, less learning going on in the classroom because of some of these strategies. And then that, that decrease in learning in the classroom actually made it difficult for students to capitalize on um, capitalize on these classes as an AP class because of these schools, they can't call them AP classes until they reach a certain level. And students were never reaching this level or rarely reaching this level uh, that would considered would be considered to be AP expertise in this. So it was a bit of a sort of you know circular problem the teachers were confronting. Um, lastly, um, students come in with a lot of um, a lot of sort of preformed ideas about what China is and the fact that it's very different from the West. And so one of the things that teachers tried to do is to try to make China seem like the West, to seem similar, to be, seem modern, to make themselves seem similar to the students and the kinds of experiences the students have so that it seemed less foreign. And that was one of the ways in which they um, tried to sort of help students unlearn some of these entrenched perspectives about China. Uh, yeah, this is something that uh, also happens in another part of the program, which you referred to before, the Chinese Bridge Summer Program, where uh, students are taken on a study trip to China, uh, put on by uh, the Confucius Institute's larger um, kind of institution. And you talk about the ways in which 
some parts of this program try to represent China as a modern uh, globalized nation and how uh, American students didn't always respond uh, positively to those attempts. So I'm wondering if you might talk about that and what kinds of um, things happened on these trips that you were along on and what's the significance of all that? Yes, great question. So uh, these were fascinating trips. Um, every year, the Confucius Institute sponsors between five and 700 American students to go to China for 17 days to take language classes and to do some touring. And so the students pay for their own airfare and then everything else is covered. And I ended up chaperoning um, on um, this trip. And one of the things that they're doing here is they're really trying to, uh, these were very structured programs. And so there was very little freedom for students to do anything other than what was on the agenda. So you started language classes in the morning and then you had these cultural instructions in the afternoon. So that would be artwork, you know, reproducing some of the traditional Chinese culture stuff, or it would be tours around whatever city your group had been sent to. And so we spent lots of time on buses traveling around, um, looking at modern buildings, driving past golf courses, visiting airplane factories, looking at all this avant-garde architecture. And I started to call this sort of witnessing the modern. Um, what this was doing is, is trying to show these students that China had all the entrapments of modernity as it was recognized in the West. And so these tours were very, these, they were very purposeful, that this was really trying to get students to see China, not just as this traditional place or this poor backward place, but to also see how it was, was modern. And um, at one point, it was a very didactic process. And I started to think about this as the perpetual presence of the adverb was what went through my head. We were constantly being told how China had rapidly modern, modernized or successfully globalized or skillfully integrated um, modern architecture, all these kind of things. So we were toured and told how we were supposed to think about this consistently. Well, um, the, this was not why these students came to China. They wanted um, an escape from their parents. Um, they wanted the freedom to go run around on their own. They wanted to explore what they thought was some sort of very orientalized, authentic experience of China. And so students started um, you know, co making comments about how this felt like jail. Um, this wasn't the real China. Um, and they complained sort of incessantly about wanting to sort of see the real China. And um, one of the things that was quite interesting is our group was in a hotel next to this night market. And if you're familiar with Chinese night markets, this is not the modernity that is being uh, reproduced on these cultural, um, on these Confucius institutes. You know, these are oftentimes um, migrants come in from out of town. They're selling all sorts of different kinds of food products. They're a little chaotic. They're loud. Um, and they're actually a lot of fun, but I took students out to the night market across the street um, from our hotel several times at night. And this was sort of the most exciting thing for them. This is what they perceived to be the authentic, right? This was a sort of antithesis of modernity. And this is what they, this is what they were perceiving as a particular kind of authenticity that they wanted to see. And they didn't want to see modern China uh, because when they saw modern China, the things that they would remark upon is the fact that across the street from modern China, there was poverty. So they were oftentimes reproducing some of their ideas about China, despite all the attempts of the Confucius Institute to show them this. Now, so, so on the one hand, we can think about 
we can think about this as a sort of soft power failure. This is not, the students are not getting the kind of story or the kind of narrative about China that the Confucius Institutes are attempting. But one of the things I wanted to do in this chapter was to push us to think about different audiences and to think about the ways in which, how might these projects, all these Confucius Institutes also be directed toward global audience? I mean, not global audiences, excuse me, domestic audiences. And I started to think about this a lot when, as we're touring around these cities and these going to all these modern places, we were frequently on the news in the evenings. And the Confucius Institute tour guides would come to talk to me in the morning. Oh, did you see us on the news last night? They showed us at the airplane factory or they showed us at the museum or whatever it was. And so all of our performances and visits had a domestic audience. And one of the interesting things about this, though, is that we were a fairly um, sort of phenotypically ethically diverse group. Now, historically, um, schools who went on these programs were told that these programs were not for Chinese American or Asian American students, that those were not the audience, and those students were specifically excluded from these programs. Now, as the years went by, uh, the school sort of ran out of non um phenotypically Asian students. And so more and more students who were engaged on these programs in the summertime were in fact, did in fact have Chinese American parents. They'd been adopted from China. Um, They had Chinese parents who were working in the United States. And so of our 50 students, close to half of them were phenotypically Asian students. And one of the things that was quite interesting though, is on the media at night, it was only the Caucasian students who were featured. And so, and, and a couple of African-Americans, but none of the, or very, very few of the Chinese American students or the phenotypically Asian students were featured on the evening news. And this was true of the photographs that were taken. This was true of the DVD that was put together at the end. And so one of the things that I started thinking about was the ways in which then that this is showing a particular audience, a very white audience, and this is a white audience and that it is shown sort of desiring China, which really upsets these global racial hierarchies and moves China into this position of desirability. And so we can also think then about a domestic audience um, and how this becomes sort of a form of soft power in some ways for this domestic audience, because the domestic audience then sees the Chinese state that's sponsoring these programs as having a particular kind of legitimacy through creating, through moving China up in these these global hierarchies of power. So that was one of the things that came out of this chapter. Um, the other thing is that it really is pushing us, I think, to think about the concept of modernity and how is it that China is invoking different kinds of modernity, in fact, offering itself as kind of um, an antithetical model to the forms of modernity that are happening in the West. Um, you know, can we think about China or how is China trying to get us to think about itself as a model of globalization, as sort of a model for the universal rather than the sort of local particular? Mm-hmm. Uh, those are all really interesting thoughts about what was uh happening on those trips. I'm wondering if we can turn back now to the U.S. And uh, you didn't just look at the students themselves, but you also looked at their parents. So in your next chapter, you talk about how both American students and their parents, how they imagined China and the Chinese state. Um, So I'm wondering if you can talk us through what these kinds of ideas were and how their perceptions of the Chinese state uh, changed or didn't change as the students continued through their studies in the Confucius classrooms? 
Yeah, absolutely. So this chapter draws upon what is known as an anthropology of the state. And what it's asking here is, how do we think about the state anthropologically? How do we think about the, the constitution of the state? Who constitutes it? Is the state some sort of coherent entity? How do we delineate what is inside and outside the state? And so in this chapter, rather than looking at the state as a unified sort of coherent entity, of this chapter in the book really looks at these different constituencies of the state, how there's conflict, how people who interact with the state imagine it. And this chapter then looks specifically, uh, largely at parents and students to see how do they understand the Chinese state. And, and by using the term imagine, I don't mean that this is false, but that we all think about states quite differently. And how do we construct states through the ways in which we perceive them? And so as these parents and students sort of navigate the way their way through the state's policies and representations and agents, how do they understand the state as a thing? And um, there's a this, the chapter begins by recounting a very very funny episode of the Daily Show, um, in which the the correspondent visits the Confucius Institute and, and he says that he finds this you know army of tiny Maoists who had to be stopped. Um, if you haven't seen this Daily Show, I would rec- episode I would recommend you you look at it. It's it's very very funny. Um, and it starts there because this whole idea of communism and the and the the Maoists who had to be stopped, this was a very common sort of understanding of the Chinese state, particularly among parents who grew up during the height of the Cold War. And this was also particularly true, though, at the beginning of my research, five years later, um, teaching Chinese by Chinese citizens had become much more normalized and people had gotten to know these teachers. And so there was far less fear about propaganda and the spread of communism than there was at the beginning. Uh, However, at the beginning of my conversations with parents, um, they were very suspicious about what was happening in these institutes. Um, They were suspicious that my research was being funded by the Chinese government. Um, It was not. Uh, They were were convinced and suspicious that Chinese teachers were Communist Party members who were well connected and that they had come to the United States to convince students of the value of socialist governance. Um, this is a little less true for students who hadn't grown up during the height of the Cold War, but um, had, of course, listened to their parents' conversations. And these perspectives and the frequently very negative reporting on China in the media oftentimes led them to think about China as, as this threatening, polluting, growing superpower whose rise was going to be the detriment um, to the detriment of the United States. Um, Students knew a lot about the fact that Facebook was banned, that conversations about 1989 were banned, um, that discussing uh, Taiwan in the classroom might get them a dirty look. And so the classroom experience did several things in terms of addressing these perceptions. Um, It both confirmed them, but on the other hand, it also negated some of them. So the ways in which it confirmed some of this had to do with um, topics of discussion in the classroom. Um, Teachers explained to me that they were very um, specifically instructed during their training period in China before they came to the United States that they were not to have controversial discussions in the classroom. And I've always sort of called these the three T's. You know, they cannot talk about Taiwan. uh, They can't talk about trouble in Tibet. And they can't talk about the 1989 massacre in Tiananmen Square. And students know this. And students would goad teachers. um, You know, well, Taiwan is a separate country, right? Or why don't we have a Taiwan flag? Or what happened in 1989? And, um, And teachers would 
um, teachers would redirect the conversations. If somebody wanted to talk about Tibet, then it had to be about culture, not politics. Um, Taiwan was always talked about as a province. There were maps all over the walls that included Taiwan as a province of China. Um, so this tended to confirm these suspicions of authoritarian control of freedom of expression violations. The teaching materials that were used in these classrooms were these very anodyne representations of China, very much along the lines of the patriotic state culture stuff that we had talked about. Um, there was nothing even vaguely political about um, these conversations. Now, on the other hand, um, students who stuck with Chinese over the years got to know these teachers quite well. And um, for the most part, and this had, this had two um, outcomes. Number one, outside of the classroom, teachers were in fact willing to get into conversations about these um, some of these difficult, uh, these difficult topics. Um, but also probably more importantly is that for the most part, these teachers were sort of young, energetic, friendly, um, very, very little different from the average 23, 24 year old recent college grad in the United States. They wanted to travel. They want to see the world. They come to the United States and buy iPhones. Um, they drink expensive lattes and their conversations about their lives in China, uh, begin to reveal to the students that, frankly, their lives are not that much different than the you know average 23-year-old in the United States. And so students begin to see China as less different, to understand that average daily life in China has very little to do with politics, um, that being a party member, as one teacher mentioned, um, is like being a, a Costco member in the United States. And so these teachers are representatives of the state. So this is how, so people come to imagine the state through these teachers. And as such, um, the Chinese state also at times begins to seem less tyrannical, that China becomes more like the United States and that changes their opinions. Um, as, as more than one student mentioned, you know, they go shopping just like we do. And so it's kind of, it's ironic because this whole idea of consumer freedom becomes the expression of normality here. And this is particularly ironic because this has been the, the mantra in the United States for decades. That the more Chinese get to choose what they consume, the more they're going to start to demand political choice. And clearly this, this doesn't happen. Um, and so the students begin to see these Chinese um, teachers, these Chinese represent, represent, representatives of the state as quite like them. And they, the more that they have those kinds of conversations, the more they get to know these teachers, the more parents and students actually see China as a more politically free place than they imagined it to be. So what's kind of interesting, ironically, is that this has the potential to produce more soft power for China, you know, through teachers doing exactly what they're told not to do, i.e. having open, frank conversations with people. Uh, this is the way in which soft power gets produced. Mm, interesting. And uh, you Go kind of in a, a different route for your next chapter, which uh, addresses this issue of kind of academic freedom or academic independence, um, which is kind of a common concern or, or trope about the Confucius Institutes in the media. Um, and you say that there's this problem that uh, this is basically the only question that is asked about the Confucius Institute. So what you do is you seem to be looking at uh, evidence from your research that shows expressions of free speech and evidence of threats to free speech. So I'm wondering if you can talk us through that and um, what this demonstrates about 
or doesn't about free speech and the Confucius Institutes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, th- and this is a really, this has been a very controversial conversation that I've been having here about these conversations about free speech in the classroom. Um, when I get interviewed by the media about this over the years, the very first question that everybody has is, can you please tell us about violations of free speech in the classroom? Um, and the, the work of mine that gets cited the most are, in fact, these anecdotes about um, free speech violations. So there's one student in particular who, in very evocative language, said, well, the minute we want to talk about Tiananmen Square, the teacher says, hey, wait a minute, let's talk about fluffy bunnies, right? And so in this kind of comic way, she's uh, you know, telling us about the ways in which we cannot have these conversations about Tiananmen here. And those are the kinds of things that would get very frequently reproduced from my work. Um, and there are violations of free speech in the classroom or clampdowns on the expression of free speech. There are certain topics that are deterred. Um, and there are certain problematic, problematic representations of China or what I would call problematic representations. Um, In the materials, China is always a place that is never the aggressor. The air is clean. The government is always decent to its citizens. The minorities are happy as clams. And so there is a fair amount of what oftentimes gets called propaganda in the classroom, right? And um, and I'm not, I'm not denying that or, or by any means or negating any kind of claim about the value of freedom of speech. Um, and I went in there looking for this initially. I really wanted to find out what was propaganda, what stories they were telling. Um, and so I, like everybody else, was really concerned about repression of freedom of speech in the classroom. But one of the things, though, that began to force me to think about this in a little bit more depth was I started to think about the ways in which the Confucius Institutes were almost always posed as a place where you could either have free speech or you could not. And this really pushed me to think about what constituted free speech and what might that look like to have free speech in this classroom here. And I began to realize that the way in which parents and students and media And scholars were talking about free speech is that free speech could only mean one particular thing in the space of this classroom. And that had to be critiques of the government, of the Chinese state, and of China. And that anything, anytime anybody said anything positive about China, that had to be perceived as propaganda, that it had to be repression. And one of the things that that does then is that takes these teachers and puts them in this position of if there's anything that they value about China. So if there is anything that, if there are aspects of China that they find to be positive, this reproduces this idea of repression. And this becomes the sort of unfreedom for the teachers that then reproduces these global hierarchies of power through sort of limiting the composition of free speech and what it means to be a free agent, right? And so It's like only those of us who are defining free speech and defining it as a critique of the state get to be free speakers, whereas these Chinese teachers, there's no way that they can be seen as free speakers or as expressing their freedom of speech if they say anything positive about China. So my concern in this chapter was not denying that there are topics of conversation that are denied in these classrooms. And that is absolutely the case. But to think about how do we how do we move ourselves outside of having only one form of free speech be seen as um, one form of speech be seen as free. And these are teachers who outside of this classroom are highly critical oftentimes of China and highly critical of 
the Chinese government. At the same time, they're also appreciative of certain things in China. And so to be able to sort of give them a space in which they can have these conversations um, is a little um, is a little bit less repressive in terms of the ways in which we're reproducing these global hierarchies of power. Excellent. And you have one final chapter here, which is about, um, or it's called The Sites and Struggles of Global Belonging. And I'm wondering here if you can tell us a little bit about what do these kind of larger issues and debates over the Confucian Institutes tell us about uh, the shifting position of China in the world? Right. So one of the things I that I ultimately argue in this book is that this book isn't just about Confucius Institute, but it's institutes, but it's also looking at the ways in which these institutes are representative of international relations. And one of the things that I came to understand here is the way in which in order to understand power and the exchange of power between nations, we really have to look at not just the policies, but what does culture constitute in these policies? You know, what kind of culture is being exported in the interests of power? Um, does this culture actually have efficacy in the practice? And I came to the realization that it not, in, in fact, it's not only what China is doing that matters to the production of power, but what is the United States doing? What is the culture in the United States that um, reproduces certain kinds of moments where taking Chinese might mean power for a particular kind of student, might mean power for an administration? And so it really, I think, forces us to think about the ways in which these social and educational and economic norms in the United States really shape both how and whether China's soft power efforts have positive results for China. It's not just about whether China wants or tries to gain power, but it's how these forms of power are implemented and how the implementations then um, react with very sort of complex forms of subjectivity in the United States. So the debates over these Confucius Institutes in a lot of ways are not just about the institutes themselves, but they're really about the shifting position of China in the world and about the United States in the world. And so I think we can argue that the kinds of debates we're having over them really tell us a whole lot about the fears and the concerns over changes in the global order. What exactly constitutes a superpower? How should a superpower be powerful? Um, these are questions over moral authority. You know, what is it and who has it? So they're not just debates over China's position, but they're debates over the position of the United States in relationship to China. Um, the U.S. certainly sees China as necessary to its economic security, but is clearly afraid of what this set suggests for both the moral authority of power and for the global hierarchy of these nation states. And so ultimately, I think we can argue that these debates over the Confucius Institutes are about who controls the meaning of modernity, who controls the meaning of globalization. Um, I probably could have called this book um, China and the U.S. in the world, too. Um, well, Jennifer, I think we've taken up a lot of your time. So we're going to end with one final question, and that's what are you working on now? Well, this um, this project and its sort of incursions into issues of diplomacy um, really made me start thinking um, about the constitution of diplomacy. You know, how does soft power act as a, as a certain kind of diplomacy? and um, this book was um, going to press around the time, or, or the proofs were being finished around the time of the change of administrations in the United States. And I was watching the United States have conversations about building walls. We pulled out of the Paris Accords. And I started thinking about, well, how is it that 
if we're decreasingly involved in some of these state-to-state diplomacy, how do we think about where diplomatic action is happening? And this started to get me thinking a lot about city diplomacy. And so I actually have started this whole new project. Um, I have a two-year research fellowship from USC through their public diplomacy program. And I'm going to be looking at city-to-city diplomacy now. And the project is actually based in Portland, Oregon, which is where I work. And I'm thinking about the ways in which, how is it that we have certain kind of urban problems in these small smaller, what scholars call ordinary cities, not the huge mega cities. So how do we take urban problems and reach outward to global cities um, to solve local problems? So I'm currently looking at some of Portland's engagements with uh, some of the global environmental um, organizations, C40, and some of the other um, Northwest-oriented ones. I'm looking at some of the sister cities and looking at how it is that we solve issues of equity through engaging with other cities. So this is the very beginning of this new project. It's, it's been quite interesting. It's very different from anything that I've done, both because it's not China-focused, but also because it doesn't have a place in the same way that so much of the other work that I've done. But it's been really fascinating so far. So I'm looking forward to working on this new book right now. Yeah, it sounds really interesting. Uh, So thank you again for being on the show today. Uh, I really enjoyed hearing more about your project and goodbye. Thank you very much and have a great weekend. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Lori Dickmeyer. Thank you for listening.